0: My name is Tim Porter, senior pastor here for Faith Community Church, and just thank you so much for being here in the room with us uh, this week, and it's a great honor to be back in the room with you all uh, again. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that I was on the screens, and uh, it was weird to be at home watching myself and participating in worship while you all were here. I was at home, and I was watching myself on the screen. It was pretty interesting. So uh, one of my sons walked downstairs, like, hey, I'm seeing double right now, uh, as I was on the screen, and I was in the living So, uh, online, thank you so much for being here as well. Uh, It's good to have you with us. We are in a series called Life on Purpose, and we have this series at this point in time in our calendar year this year because uh, we are ramping up a lot of ministries and opportunities to serve together as a church uh, this fall. And uh, August 28th, you already heard Pastor Larry mention this, that August 28th we're going to have a ministry fair where there's going to be a lot of different places to serve and for you to be involved in and to serve. So I want you to be considering that. But as we get ready to serve together, we want to just remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he is continuing to do so that we as a church can live a life on purpose and we as individuals can live our lives on purpose. So that's what we're doing here today. If you remember just a little context, Uh, we started, we're in the book of Luke, and if you want to, you can turn to page uh, 860, and the Bible's in front of you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 43 together this morning, and uh, in the context, uh, Jesus has just Overcome the devil, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the devil today. He's just overcome the devil. He's resisted all kinds of temptations that the devil threw at him, and then Jesus goes into his hometown. And he announces, "This is what I've come to you. I've come to you. I've come to proclaim good news, and I've come to. I've come to uh, release captives and set them free." And if we have a church, we as a church, we want to be grounded in Jesus and his overcoming and his word and his scriptures, how he overcame the devil, we can learn to fight the devil as well. And then last week we talked about how we need to have this mindset as a church that Jesus came and he, he, he came and he's, he's moving and he's going out and he's bringing the good news wherever he goes and he's not gonna stay in one place, he wants to keep it moving and then today, We're going to talk about what does it look like? What's Jesus' purpose in all of this? What did he come to do? And if we as a church are called into Jesus, into relationship with him, we've experienced his power, a relationship with him. He calls us as well into his purpose. So what is it? Beginning in verse 31. And he, this is Jesus, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word, his teaching, that is, possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he arose, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Simon is also Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve with him. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and he went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, if you've been with us this series, or if you're here today, we are confronted with something that we don't really talk about that much, and maybe you don't have much thought about, and that is the devil, demons. Satan. Chapter 4 begins with Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Here we see Jesus having an encounter with someone who has an unclean demon in him. Satan. Demons. How much thought do you give to Satan and demons? In 1995, there was a movie called The Usual Suspects, or Usual Suspects. And not only did that movie have an amazing plot twist, rivaled only, I think, by The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis, but there was a line in that movie that has haunted me ever since I first heard it. And the line is this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. How much thought you give to the reality of the existence of Satan and demons? Jesus said that he came in another passage in John ten ten, 10, a verse that's very, very important to us as a church. Jesus said that, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is one of the reasons, the primary reason why we talk about how we want thousands, we want to experience, we want thousands to experience a gospel-inspired life, because Jesus said that he came to give a life that we can't have in and of ourselves. But also in John 10, 10, Jesus contrasts his life, his purpose, his ministry, what his service is all about, who he is and what he's doing with someone he calls the thief. He says the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief that Jesus is talking about is the devil himself. Jesus has come to release us, release us from the work of the evil one, and he's come to do it because we are are powerless to do what only what Jesus can do. Now, I'm going to spend some time today talking about Satan, and I'm going to hopefully push you and give you some things to really consider about Satan and the existence of Satan, because we have two sort of forces fighting against us Two, at least in our current cultural context here in western modernized america and they converge together one is that we are and many people have talked about this we are a secular people what that means is we don't believe in anything spiritual that's our cultural sort of push There is nothing spiritual. All there is is what we can see, touch, and feel and analyze and evaluate with our senses. There's nothing beyond that. We're in a closed system. And because of that, the chief purpose that our culture gives us to live is this. This is the sort of the last hero storyline left that we all sort of rally around. It's this. You don't know who you are yet. You've got all kinds of people telling you who you are and who you should be. But what you really need to do is you really need to dig down deep inside and see what are your desires. You need to figure out who you really are. And you need to live true to who you really are. And don't let anybody else get in the way of you being who you really are. Let it go, let it go, you familiar with that? I mean, that that's, that's the hero arc. That's the hero arc of Frozen. And it's all over the place. It's self-fulfillment. It's self-celebration. And because of that, because that's the hero arc in our culture, for many hearing about Jesus, Jesus doesn't feel like someone who's bringing freedom to them. He feels restrictive because he's got some do's and don'ts attached to him. But Jesus has come to give us freedom from the very thing that our culture is telling us is the hero arc. Because the hero arc that our culture celebrates is birth in hell itself. It's actually enslavement. Evidence i got this from the church of satan website not that they're experts i'm serious they're not experts but just listen to how they describe what satanists do we satanists and let me know if it sounds familiar we satanists value ourselves primarily hence our perspective is one in which places ourselves at the center of the myriad of subjective universes around us. And we feel free to cultivate our own personas and our own identities, taking from what inspires us as well as applying some inventiveness to ourselves towards our ongoing self-celebration. We create who we are. Does that sound familiar at all? We create who we are. That's what Satanists say. See, the trick of the devil is not to get you to worship him by making much of him. The trick of the devil is to get you to worship him by making much of you and me and celebrating us. We are our own creators of our own identities, it's slavery. Now again, the Church of Satan are not experts on who Satan is. The Bible lets us know what's going on, and so this is true, what they say about themselves, because this is exactly how Jesus was tempted. If you're really the Son of God, Jesus, Satan said to him, then then do this. Live by your desires. You're hungry right now. You've been fasting for 40 days. You haven't had a thing at all. Use your power to satisfy your desires. Make this rock bread. A temptation only powerful to jesus and he says no test god throw yourself down from this temple self-fulfillment we ignore the work of the evil one in our culture and we live and breathe in his work and we don't see it And then Jesus comes along. Thankfully. And Jesus does something like this as we read about in verses 33 and 34. In the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Demons are real. The devil is real. We tend to not think about him that much, though, unless we're being tempted to chocolate cake. And it's hard for us because we sort of, like, we don't really demonize the devil anymore. We sort of make him cute in our culture. If you believe in anything at all, it's like just the temptation, or it's like one of the angels, you know, angels and demons forcing you to do some kind of decision, make a choice. he's an enemy. He's an enemy of our souls. And he wants you and your relationships destroyed. He's motivated by hate and spite. He hates you. And he'll do everything in his power to try to destroy your life. And Jesus has come to set us free from him. And we see an example of that here in this passage. Now, it can be hard to think about Satan because I don't see him around at all. So what's he like? And it's hard to see that. And, you know, I just want to give you a few things. If you're, like, struggling or trying to put together, yeah, you, know, you could say, you know what? Okay, Jesus, I can see that. He's got some good teaching. He's got some power. Okay, I, I'm, I'm tracking along with that. But, man, this whole demon thing, man, that's just fiction. I just don't get that. Let me just give you a few things to consider. Give you a few things to consider if you are intellectually resisting the reality of Satan as somebody who's against you. First, in our world or in our cultural context, and this has happened throughout human history, it's part of our our heart as well that when something evil happens, when something evil happens, one of our responses as human beings is to question whether or not there is a good, all-powerful God in existence. We reason like this. If this is evil and it happened and God is powerful and he's good, he should have stopped it. And so we use evil as a reason to disbelieve God at times or we're challenged to believe in a good God. I want to flip that script just a second. I want to ask the question. Instead of using evil as an existence, as a reason to disbelieve God, One of the questions I think we've got to ask is that if you don't believe in a devil and if there isn't a good, good, all-powerful God there, how do we know what evil really is? In 1995, the same year that Usual Suspects came out, Andrew Delbanco, who was a resident of New York, Harvard, educated, wrote a book. He's not a Christian. He is a secularist. That's how he describes himself as a secularist. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. How Americans have lost the sense of evil is the subtitle. Again, he's a secularist, not a Christian, and he was troubled in 1995 by what he was seeing, and things have only gotten worse. This is the opening, these are the opening sentences to his introduction to his book. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available that we have in our culture for coping with it. Again, this is 1995 before the internet or the internet is just starting to make some waves. He says, never before have images of horror been so widely disseminated and so appalling from organized death camps to children starving and famines that might have been averted Rarely does a week go by without newspaper and television accounts of teenagers performing contract killings for a few dollars, women murdered on the street for their purses or their furs, young women shot, young men shot for their keys to their jeep. The repertoire of evil has never been richer, and never have our responses have human beings been so weak. Why? Because we have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. If you don't believe in a devil, how do you believe in evil? Or if you do believe in evil, where did it come from? See, the Bible isn't making up fictitious things and talking about a devil. The Bible is dealing with reality the real world as we have it and as God made it. Consider as well, if you don't believe in the devil, how culturally narrow you actually are. I'm meddling now just a little bit. It's primarily Western secularists in world history, white Western secularists that have a really hard time believing in the devil other cultures around the world have no problem believing in spirits and demons and the devil. met a guy a couple years ago named JJ. He's a missionary in Togo, West Africa. We were down at Milwaukee Burger a few years ago, right after they opened up. He's telling me stories about what he's experiencing and how people are being released from bondage to Satan and devils and demons, because Togo, if you didn't know, is the birthplace of voodooism. How narrow it is when the rest of the world has a lot of wisdom about the world to say, no, that probably doesn't exist. Something else to consider. If you don't believe in the devil, you're not gonna be prepared for the life that you're up against and living. Because there are powers and there are forces much more powerful and stronger than you that are against you in your life and don't want you to live. They want you to be destructive in your life. This last Friday, just two days ago, my wife and I dropped off our middle son at college for his freshman year. And at times like that, those kinds of massive transitions, sorry, Deej, I forgot to tell you, I was gonna talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Thought of it this morning while you were waking up, sorry. Those major transitions in life, right? You, you have these flashbacks. Those of you who have gone through this, you know, you, you have these flashbacks. And I, I was telling Ian, I'm like, I remember when we brought you home and our whole lives changed and now you're leaving and our whole lives are changing again in just a few years. And I remember with each one of our sons repeatedly at times, especially after they were caught lying, talking to them and saying, you don't Want to participate with the kingdom of darkness. When you lie, you are teaming up with the king of lies himself. And you don't belong to him. You belong to Jesus. And Jesus is truth. Live for him. Don't participate in darkness. Parents, we are being told all the time about how to prepare your children to leave the home and live successful lives. How often are we talking to them about the greatest evil that's against them and seeks to destroy them and has an arsenal far more powerful than us and schemes that we cannot overcome except for the right man is on our side as luther sang this is what jesus has come to do for us we see in jesus is that he has come to overcome our enemy and that doesn't mean that everybody's that everybody is Possessed, that's not what this is trying to get at, but this is tapping into a larger narrative in the Bible that the Bible is a love story where God pursues us even though we've run away from him because we listen to the voice of the serpent, we listen to Satan at the beginning who questioned the goodness of God simply by asking our first mother, did God really say? And That poison has been in our hearts ever since so that we doubt we're suspicious of God's goodness. But God still keeps coming after us because he's relentless in his love. And so I love that we sing the song, Reckless Love, here. These words just echo in my heart that there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. That's the kind of love that's in God, that he's coming after us, that sent Jesus, that Jesus is coming to fulfill and just like every good love story it's set in the context of a battle you and i live day in and day out in the context of a battle and there are no there is no neutral ground and i'm from sweden a couple generations back there is no neutral ground It's the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of darkness, and we are born into the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus has come to get us out. He's come to get us out. C.S. Lewis talks this way in Mere Christianity. He says, Christianity is is a fighting religion. Not the way maybe pundits make it in political talk, but it's a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world, that space and time and heat and cold and all the colors and tastes and the animals and vegetables are things that God made up just out of his own imagination. It's amazing to think about. But Christianity also also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made. And I love this. I love this. God insists and insists very loudly on putting the world right again. That's what Jesus has come to do. When the Bible insists that there are demons, it's letting us know something about our greatest enemy and what God has come to do to get us out from his clutches. You know, some people maybe think that the Bible is full of demons and Satan talk and stuff like that. It's actually really not. The most occurrences of talking about the devil or demons is actually in the Gospels with the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because the kingdom of God is, invi- is invading the kingdom of the enemy. And if you're king and you see somebody coming in who's far more powerful than you and you see where the battle lines are and you see where the weaknesses are you're going to put all your resources and all your marshal all your strength to go to where the weakest point is and that's what we see in the gospels Satan is marshaling his minions and he's trying to get them toward Jesus because that's his weakest spot and Jesus is part more powerful it's amazing about Jesus Now again, this doesn't mean that everybody's born possessed. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible doesn't teach that. Possession still exists today, but we are, we're not born free despite what Oklahoma tells us. We're born enslaved. And Jesus has come to set us free. Apostle Paul talks this way in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's his way of talking about Satan in this context. You were following the spirit that's now at work in in disobedience, among whom we all once lived. How? Carrying out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. You're by nature children of wrath. And this is what Jesus has come to save us from. Save us from. Paul reminds us as well in, later on in Ephesians where he says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He's using this language of authorities and rulers and cosmic powers to let us know just how authoritative and powerful these things are that we are enslaved to because we can't overcome them. And Jesus comes in and he says something like this in Matthew. I will build my church and the kingdom of hell will not overcome it. As Christians, we are to live with a understanding that we're in battleground. And when we when the Bible talks about how we struggle not against flesh, but against flesh, but against spiritual powers and all these other things, it's not saying that we don't still struggle against flesh and blood. It's that that the when we are in a conflict, when we are in struggle against evil, we're we're struggling against something that's far more powerful than we are, and we don't have the resources to overcome it. But Jesus does. Racism is a horrific evil that's birthed in the pit of hell. God made every human being in his image. And we look at some human beings and say, you're less than me. Can I hear Satan in that? Baba gets really realistic and says that When you and I are angry, yeah, we're going to get angry. And there's some things that we need to get angry about if we love one another. But when we are angry, we've got to deal with our anger in a really well, in a good way, in a gospel kind of way. Why? Because Paul says, in that moment when you are angry, that's an opportunity for the devil. How much relational despair and relational destruction have we brought into our lives because we act out of anger. That's an opportunity for the devil. Now we don't want to think too highly. There's equal and opposite dangers here. We don't want to think too highly of the devil and his power. And we also don't want to think too low of him either. One of our temptations, I think, in our culture is to think too low of him But just in case that we we think too high of him at times and we start looking for a demon behind every rock or something like that. Whether we start to cower in fear as cultural changes are taking place. We need to remember what Jesus did to release this man who is in captivity from his captivity. Verse 35. Jesus rebuked him. He rebuked the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done no harm. Jesus restored this man to full health. And how did he do it? This is what amazed the original context. It was how Jesus did it. It wasn't that there was a demon there. It was how Jesus dealt with the demon because there were ways in the first century to try to deal with demon possession. You have to do certain incantations. You try to get power over the demon. You try to do all these types of kinds of things. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus doesn't even pray. Jesus doesn't even call on God, which is what Jewish men and women would do or rabbis would do when a demon was there and trying to exorcise that demon out. Jesus just simply says, shut up. Come out of him. Rebukes him. So the Bible doesn't have this view of Jesus' power and demon power like what we get in The Exorcist. Terrible movie. But there's this battle going on? No. Jesus just walks in and just says, stop. Be quiet. Get out of him. And Jesus is doing this intentionally to show us his power. Martin Luther captured this well in The Mighty Fortress. The prince of darkness dream, grim, we tremble not for him. He's our foe. We can't beat him on our own, but Jesus beats him for us. He beats him for us. He has the power to do what we cannot do on our own. Do you know that kind of power with Jesus? It's available to us. Because Jesus has come to set us free from our enemy. set us free. So we don't live for ourselves. We don't make ourselves the center of the universe anymore. We live for the real center of the universe, God himself. If we want to know more about that kind of power that Jesus has and how to experience him in your life and trust him, come talk to me right after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about how to do that but there's one other way in which Jesus is setting people free in this passage. There's a link here in this passage between the demon encounter and the healing encounter, and it's how Jesus deals with both the sickness of Peter's mother, mother-in-law and also the demon. How does he deal with it? We read in verses 38 and 39. He arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she arose and began to serve them. He restored her to full health the same way he restored the man who had the demon to full health. How? Simply speaking. Simply speaking. again here's a a beautiful guard against us maybe making too much of the devil because there are people well-meaning people who you know see behind every sickness there's some kind of demon that's not what Jesus is getting at here if he wanted to he could have rebuked the demon that was behind the sickness that's not what he did he rebuked the fever but still sickness and demons and evil and Satan are bound up together in a sense of what the devil wants is our destruction, and he's a foreign invader into God's world, and he brings with him desolation and disease. The reason why we get disease is because we are under a kingdom that's destructive over which Satan is ruler. And Jesus comes in and rebukes both the demon and he rebukes the sickness. Because Jesus is bent and has a purpose to wield his power with compassion for our suffering. And he wants to, longs to set us free. These two episodes are part of a growing narrative in the Gospel of Luke and all the Gospels of figuring out who this Jesus is. And we have these two scenarios, these two episodes tied together like this with a demon being pushed out with a word and sickness being healed just simply with a word. What Luke is trying to tell us and what Jesus is doing in this time is he's letting us know that our two greatest enemies as human beings are not a match for him. Our enslavement to evil is not a match for him and our sickness that always eventually leads to death is not a match for him. Jesus is able to heal us not only from the evil that we participate in and have been enslaved to, he's able to also heal us fully and completely. Every miracle that Jesus does is a picture of what he's going to be accomplishing fully. Peter's mother in law still died. He healed her then, but she still died eventually. She's not with us anymore. And Jesus didn't come to just simply heal specific diseases around the way. And there's no promise in Scripture that if you trust Jesus, he'll heal you from every disease that you might have. But the promise is, eventually you will die but in trusting in Jesus, he's come to give us life and life abundantly, and that means when he returns one day, he will cause us to burst forth from the grave just like he did. That's what he's coming for. Now Jesus was, the the, the people tried to keep Jesus with them, and Jesus makes this statement about his purpose in life and what he's doing. He says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The kingdom of God is one where we have released from the evil, one where we have the promise of resurrection life to come, and it's already starting to work its way out in us right now. But when we participate with Jesus, we come to trust in Jesus. We not only come to participate in the benefits of the kingdom, but also the purpose of Jesus, where we are bringing the gospel, the good news, in other towns as well. And this is one of the themes of this. One of the themes of the series is that we can't become insider-focused as a church. We must be like Jesus in his purpose and start looking out and seeing how many people still need to see and hear the good news that don't know anything about Jesus' power to overcome their greatest problems in life. That's what he's called us to do and to participate in. One of the things that's amazing about this passage as well, I think, is that right away, as soon as Peter's mother-in-law gets healed from her sickness, what does she start to do? She starts to serve. She starts to serve. And that actually happens a lot in the Gospels. People who experience deliverance, release, healing in relationship with Jesus, they start serving others right away. Because that's the purpose of Jesus, to help more and more and more and more people hear the good news. Like I mentioned, and you've already heard it now a couple times, but August 28th, August 28th, we've got an opportunity to for a ministry fair. We've got all kinds of opportunities for you to serve. And you don't have a place where you're serving yet? please consider where you can serve to help more and more people experience and hear about the goodness of Jesus as you have been set free to help others experience Jesus setting them free. And You need to know that as we go in the purpose of Jesus together, his mission was one of power, but it was also of compassion. And we're gonna be up against the forces of darkness as we do that, And at the same time, Jesus has already overcome them, so we must not be afraid. We must be humbly courageous in introducing more and more and more people to Jesus. There's many different places to serve. You're going to hear a lot about them. But one of the ways in which we're highlighting this year to serve is with our Next Generation ministry. There's a a thing called the 414 window. And what that means is that most people, in general, most people, meet Jesus and say yes to him between the ages of four and 14. That doesn't mean that nobody else matters, please don't hear that, but that means that that, that's like the most strategic time to be marshaling our our resources. Because you've gotta know, if that's when most people say yes to Jesus, where's the kingdom of darkness gonna be? Right on that front line. One of the reasons why we, one of the many reasons why we were overjoyed to have Dan Clancy come join us as our next generation executive leader is because of a statement that he made in one of the interviews. He's been doing youth ministry and children's ministry for a really long time. And we asked him, are you sure there's not something else that you'd want to do? Why why do you want to continue to do youth ministry and children's ministry? He said, I want to be on the front lines. I want to be on the front lines. That's where people are saying yes to Jesus. And that's where I want to be. So we really want to encourage you to join up with our Next Generation ministry. But also recognize that there's a lot of different places that God might call you to be, and all of them are good. Right after the service, we'll have people, representatives of our Next Generation ministries out there, and we would love to talk to you about that. One of the questions that I think comes to us is, how is, it that, how is it that Jesus was able to do this? Jesus was able to do what nobody else was able to do. He just spoke to a demon. There was no battle, no fight, no wrestling around. He just spoke, and it left. The sickness, he just spoke, and it just left. It's part of who he is. Even the demon says that. You're the Holy One of God. But it's not just of who he is it's also about what he did see jesus talks about as we looked at last week that he's come to set captives free how do you set captives free you can overpower them you can kill them you can kill the oppressors but that's not what jesus did jesus comes in to set captives free by paying a debt that you and i owe a debt that we owe. A debt that we owe because we've listened to the evil one. We've, we've been party to the evil one. We've lived in his kingdom and at times we've liked living in his kingdom and we owe a great debt to that devil. And Jesus says that I have come to give my life as a ransom, a ransom as a debt paid. He gave his life as a ransom so that you and I can be set free from the works of the evil one so we can live in freedom, that we can help others know that freedom as well. It's not just who he is, it's also what he does. And as we take communion together, we remember Jesus' life that he gave for us. So I invite you to take the communion packet out, At home, make sure that you've got bread and wine or grape juice available. And take the wafer out. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, it's part of the meal, and he, thanks God, he thanked God for the bread. And then he handed that out to all of his disciples, and as they held it in their hands, as you hold this in your hand, Jesus said to them, and Jesus says to us, this is my body given for you. Take and eat and remember me. And now the cup. With the cup of wine, and Jesus told his disciples, this is this represents my blood, the blood of a new covenant where I lay down my life and I die as a ransom for the sins of many. Remember Jesus and his ransom paid for you and drink to your freedom.